thank you for coming. Um, I'm Abigail Rokerson Woodall, and this is, of course, Simon Russell Beale. Um, we're general editors, along with um, Professor Michael Dobson, of the new Arden Shakespeare Performance Editions. And we're delighted to be here today to talk a little bit about those, and also, we thought, about the process of editing Shakespeare, in particular, editing Shakespeare for performance. So, the Arden Performance Editions are editions that we've designed particularly for use in the rehearsal room. And we thought we'd talk you through a little bit of our thinking in a minute. Um, I've edited Hamlet and uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream for the series. And Paul Menzer has edited Romeo and Juliet. Anna Camarelli has edited Much Ado About Nothing. And we've got Othello, Macbeth, and Twelfth Night all following very shortly. So, so I'm going to start by looking at the history of the acting or performance edition and uh, using Hamlet, really, as an example. And Simon and I will then talk a bit about texts that are used in contemporary rehearsal rooms and then take you through our edition. But first, I'm going to hand over to Simon to tell you something about how and why he got involved in the series as a general editor. <clears throat> yeah, this is going to be quite improvisatory, this hour. <laughs> um, <clears throat> editing Shakespeare is something I'm absolutely fascinated by. We'll uh, um, do a quick show of hands. Those of you who think you're pretty up on how editions of Shakespeare work. Can you put your hands up? <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. Very few, actually. And the sort of people who are sort of mediumly knowledgeable, like I would say I was. And people who don't know anything about it at all. <laughs> can I, brilliant. Can I, do, can I also do two other things? Are there any A-level students here or fabulous? And are there any young, budding actors here? If at the end of the session, any of you feel, you can do it from your seat, but go through one of the Hamlet speeches with me, I'd be very grateful. That's the last group. Or that anyone can do it, actually. But, um, but budding actors and A-level students would be lovely. Um, editing Shakespeare. I've, I've become absolutely fascinated by this process, and that's part of the reason why me, as a non-academic, decided to join these two extremely distinguished academics in uh, helping to edit this new edition. Um, I'll tell you where it started. I, I started with absolutely no knowledge of this at all. And um, like a lot of people in this country, I was given Shakespeare to study at school. And I assumed that that book you got to study, I don't know about this A-level student here, but the book you get, which one are you studying? Which, which play? Shakespeare play? Which one? Right. <gasps> Not doing Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> I shall turn into Michael Gove. Um, the... Uh, the, the, the volume you got was set in stone, wasn't it? It was just, that was Hamlet, that was Macbeth, that was... And I sort of carried that with me right way through. I wasn't really very interested in things until I was doing Hamlet here on this stage, actually. And we were doing a Q&A session very like this one. And in our version of Hamlet, we'd cut Fortinbras. For those of you who don't know Hamlet, he's a character that comes in at the end. He's not a hugely major character, but he's quite an important character. Anyway, we cut him completely uh, for various reasons, which we'll go into later if you want. Um, and a lady in the audience, sitting in the front row, put up, a very elegant lady, she put up her hand and said, why have you cut, why, oh, why have you cut Fortinbras? Very reasonable question. And then she said, and I gave my answer, um, and uh, then she said, I think you should do the, the script as it is written. <laughs> and I suddenly thought... Gosh, that's a loaded statement, and I don't know how to reply to it. So I got into um, finding out how these scripts end up being printed in various books. Um, so I'm going to give you, before I hand back to Abigail, because Abigail's got this rather brilliant run-through of acting editions. But I just want to do a very quick thing about Shakespeare as he was printed in his own lifetime and just after. Most, half of the plays, 18 of the plays, made their first, and she'll correct me if I'm wrong, um, 18 of the plays made their first appearance in what were called quarto editions, which were small, popular, like a modern paperback, small, popular editions, 
Um, some of them went through various quarto editions. You know, they did more than one edition of the more popular plays. So something like Henry IV, which had false stuff in it, of course, immensely popular play at the time, went through, I don't know how many quartos, but it went through... I'm not sure how yeah, many. But anyway, it went from, yeah. through more than one. Whereas less popular plays um, only had one quarto printing. Interestingly enough, the rarest quartos in the world that still exist are the most popular. Isn't that weirdly anti... Mm -hmm. What do you call it? Instinctive. What, uh, um, yes, so Henry IV is a very rare quarto, I believe, because, and of course, it makes sense, they were read so often that they fell apart. The rarer plays that weren't so popular, nobody bothered to read. <laughs> so they've remained, uh, be more copies have remained extant. Um, so half the plays had quarter editions. Then, in the, famously, in 1623, two of Shakespeare's friends and uh, a printing consortium, uh, various people decided to publish all his plays and added another 18 to the canon. It's extraordinary thought, isn't it, that we wouldn't have Macbeth, which is on here tonight. We wouldn't have Macbeth if it hadn't been for those two actors collecting them together. We wouldn't have The Tempest. We wouldn't have Twelfth Night. We wouldn't have Julius Caesar. We wouldn't have Antony and Cleopatra. It's extraordinary. So they found another 18 plays and they shoved them all into, into the folio edition, which is just called the folio because of the size of the book. So it's a much bigger book than the little quartos. Now, from then on, oh, Shakespeare was dead by this time. From then onwards, editors have to, their principal task is to try and transfer the script from the folio, if the play only appears in the folio, like Macbeth, cleanly onto a new page which can be read by their contemporary readers. The, the problems come, or more problems come, when they have more than one version of the play in front of them. So they will have what we call authoritative text, so they'll have the folio, they might have two quartos to look at. So if you're, you're editing Hamlet, you are going to be dealing with quarto one, the first quarter to appear, quarto two, and the folio, and they're all different. And a lot of you will know that famously quarto one of Hamlet, it's to be or not to be, I there's the point. That's the line. So if you're an editor, you have to say, mm, I think I prefer that to, to be or not to be, that is the question, though you'd probably be foolish to choose it, but uh, that, that could be an option. Um, so basically, ever since then, and this is a very interesting uh, question, is how you respond to those authoritative texts is very important. Then, through the 18th century, 17th, well, 18th century mostly, a whole series of extremely distinguished editors came in, including some very famous names like Johnson and Pope, and re-edited the plays. There was a whole rash of them. They got very, very angry with each other. That was the fun of it. They hated each other. So there was a, a, uh, an editor called Tybalt, who Pope absolutely loathed, and uh, wrote the Dunciad, um, partly to rip him to shreds. So they got very, very heated. That went through the 19th century and the 20th century. That, that process of negotiating what to do with these authoritative texts and with your previous editors is what people like Abigail do. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well done. The, before I hand over to you, the, the, the real reason why I'm saying that is that those were texts principally, I'm talking about, for reading in the study. And very early on in the Shakespeare um, history of printing and reception, Shakespeare reception, that division between what could be read and what was likely to be read in the studio, in the, in the study, and what was likely to be seen on stage began to diverge. And so we start getting tugs in the way we respond to Shakespeare. As a modern actor, I do, I principally do a type of editing. We all do. Anybody who will see the play tonight, that team will have done a sort of editing on Macbeth. So they will have made decisions which are essentially editorial decisions. Uh, and these can be individual lines, individual words, whole speeches, whole scenes, um, whether you do them or not, what version you use, you're making editorial decisions. And recently in the academic world, and all credit to them, when I started 30 years ago, academics and actors didn't really talk to each other. Um, and, the, and it was the academics who made the first approach, wasn't it? Yeah. They said, come on, actors, talk to us about what you do. And we were very snooty and said, no. <laughs> yeah. you, you academics can't possibly understand the magic of what we do. Um, and uh, 
but we, they broke down the barriers. And now, if you look at an, uh, an Arden 3 edition, Series 3 edition, you will see a section on performance criticism, which is a, a very welcome addition to the editorial toolbox, which is acknowledging that the actors and the practitioners, the directors, the designers, have contributed to the critical debate. So that's an extremely uh, useful and uh, yes, valuable asset, uh, addition to the critical um, vocabulary. You're going to do... I am. You are. Should we start? Yeah. So where, where do we start with... Okay. And I'll, I'll interrupt her in this improvisatory way. Yes. So when we had set out to, um, to do an acting edition, one of the things I thought was, well, what's come before us in terms of acting or performance editions? And the concept of an acting edition of Shakespeare is certainly not new. Um, acting editions of Shakespeare's plays appeared from as early as the end of the 17th century. <coughs> but they differed in an important respect from ours, in that they sought to put the play as it was acted by a particular theatre company onto the stage. So here we've got um, Davenant's Macbeth. This was essentially an adaptation. It was severely cut. It was substantially rewritten. As you can see, it's got additions and new songs. Um, it was a musical, wasn't it? It was, it was a, musical. a musical. It was basically a musical. Can I, can I read out the whole thing? Macbeth, a tragedy with all the alterations, amendations. No, not amendations, is it? Amendments. Additions and new songs as it is now acted at the Duke's Theatre. Yeah. yeah. And one thing you'll <coughs> notice is that Shakespeare's name doesn't appear on the title page. However, so two that's years... So that's 50 years... That's 60 years after the folio. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. OK. And then Davenant's The Tragedy of Hamlet, Prin uh, Prince of Denmark, is printed two years after Macbeth in uh, 1676. And it's quite different in form. So again... Here it is. It's advertised as presenting the play as it is now acted at His Highness the Duke of York's Theatre. But, interestingly, what we actually get is a full text of the play based on the second quarto. Simon mentioned quartos. The second quarto of Hamlet is the text of Hamlet that is thought to be the closest to Shakespeare's authorial manuscript. So we've got... So, good, good, stop there. Yeah. Um, right. First quarto, second quarto, folio. The second quarto is by far the longest. Mm -hmm. I'd say that. That's quite important, I think, for later discussions. By far the longest. Uh, Ken Branagh's film of Hamlet did the whole of the second quarto. And I think it lasts over four hours. It did the second quarto plus some of the bits that, the aren't, oh, right. that, that are in... Yeah, right. the folio's got some bits that aren't in the second quarto, yeah, and the right. second quarto's got bits that aren't in the folio. Right. Including some very Branagh famous, the whole some very famous yeah. bits. Yes. Um, and the first quarto, for those of you who don't know, used to be known, not anymore, but used to be known as the bad quarto, because quite a lot of the quartos that appeared very early on in a play's life, we don't know how they were taken down. They could have been taken down from people remembering performances and seeing performances. But the one that says to be or not to be, I, that's the point, it's now known as the bad quarto, and it's very short. So Abigail's saying that, the, that, that longest one is, you say, what we think Shakespeare meant to be the final version. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's the closest to Shakespeare's authorial manuscript. Undoubtedly, Shakespeare knew that when his plays went to the theatre, all sorts of things had to happen to them, and cuts had to happen, and well, changes had to happen. Well, including four hours long. Yes, I mean, it's very long. It, you know, <laughs> I'm just pointing that out because I'm, it's the library stage thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It was Absolutely. presumably to be read principally, I would think. Possibly, I yes. Yeah. Um, Sorry. So this, this text... Um, it's, we've, we get the full text of the second quarto, but it's actually marked up to indicate the performance text. So we get this little note, this play being too long to be conveniently acted. <laughs> Such places as might be least prejudicial to the plot or sense are left out upon the stage, but that we may no way wrong the incomparable author are here inserted according to the original copy with this mark. Can I read that Simon's again? Simon's going to read it again. <laughs> this play being too long to be conveniently acted, such places as might be least prejudicial to the plot or sense are left out upon the stage. But that we may no way wrong the incomparable author 
are here inserted according to the original copy with this mark. So it's got marks through the script, is it? Yeah, so all the way through in the margins um, where lines are cut in the theatre, you've got a sort of double quotation mark going on um, all the way down both margins. Um, so it, it essentially... It seems to be trying to privilege the stage and the author kind of equally. Um, but what's interesting is that not all the lines of the incomparable author actually make it into the text intact. So, in fact, a lot of lines are revised, words are altered, and there's no indication to the reader. So, this is um, Hamlet's first soliloquy in Act 1, Scene 2, and it's quite hacked. What I've done is I've put on this side the um, second quarto-based text, and on this side, the text as it appears in the Davenant-Betterton acting edition. And I've shown you in red the bits that simply disappear in the Davenant-Betterton edition with no real indication other than some lines look awfully short. Do we, do we, know, do we know why they did that? Uh, probably things like, oh God, God, and Fiant are Fi are things which they um, are basically swear words and were considered, it's considered inappropriate. Um, some of the other bits that was to this Hyperion to a satyr probably just it's all a bit difficult a bit rude <laughs> might be might be a bit might be a bit rude um. <coughs> it's interesting because um, I was going to read this but I don't want to read it because anybody who late in this hour who wants to this, this is the speech I want to look at but um, we might not get to it but it's interesting about oh god god fie onto our fie in the second Hamlet soliloquy um, now I'm alone Anyway, that one. How's it going? I can't remember. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave life. Oh, peasant slave life. Um, <laughs> in the middle of it, there's a tiny little, very short line, which is, oh, vengeance, which is not in the folio. Is that right? No, it is in the folio. It's in the it's folio, in the but it's not in the second, second quarter. And I remember when I was doing Hamlet, I thought, oh, I can't do over. I can't make it work. It, the Hamlet that I was playing wouldn't go, oh, vengeance. He just wouldn't. So I cut it. <laughs> and I cut it with the argument behind me that it was cut for the folio and it, you know, so I had the folio behind me to support me. So there are, it's interesting, I wonder whether the, the actor went, I can't do, oh God, God, it's dreadful. I can't, I can't, fire on our fire, I can't, they can't, I can't make it work. Anyway, so there you go. The next major edition of Hamlet that we get is the, uh, what's known as the Wilkes-Hughes um, text of 1718. This is as it is now acted by His Majesty's servants. And this became the standard performance edition, acting text and basis for prompt books for over a century. Um, so I suppose one of the things that's significant in, in what we're saying is that there were probably some lines and some words from Hamlet that were not spoken on the stage for maybe as much as 150 years. And Which, famous lines, well, now famous lines. Well, possibly now famous lines, um, but, but certainly things like, I mean, Hyperion to a satyr probably wasn't said on the stage for a certain amount of time because this had become the standard performance, this Wilkes Hughes edition became a kind of standard performance edition. And it's got so a similar... Did they, ever, did, did they ever look back at the folio or the quarto and go... I, I expect... I mean, I'm sure... Not. Probably not that much. Um, probably not that much, because these were the acting editions that yeah. were published and that were, readily, that were readily available. And it's got a similar note. It's got this note, this play being too long to be acted upon the stage. Such lines as are left out in the acting are marked thus. It's just um, one quotation mark uh, this time. So these texts are aimed probably at readers who want to be able to see the difference between the text as performed and the text as written. They're not really aimed, the printed texts are not really aimed at actors or directors. So prompt books might be passed on, um, the actual version used in the theatre, but these, which are edited with the full text with the marks, uh -huh are probably mainly for readers to say, oh, isn't that interesting? They're not doing that bit in the theatre. Um, 
they're not, they're not aimed at actors and directors. But then in 1773 to 4, we get Bell's acting edition of Shakespeare. This is nine volumes. This is, this is sort of the first proper acting edition of Shakespeare. It's got notes by a man called Francis Gentleman. And it publishes the plays as they are now performed at the Theatres Royal in London, regulated from the prompt books of each of the houses by permission. So it depends on where they're performed, which of the Theatres Royal they're performed at, but that's what we get in this acting edition. And we don't get the full text anymore. We don't get it marked up. We just get what is being performed on the stage. Right. So this would be bought by somebody who saw the play, who was going to see the play. Well, I don't know. Or by other companies. Or other uh, by companies. I, mean, I would have to be amateur, because obviously you were only allowed to perform at one of the, perform professionally, perform Shakespeare at one of the Theatres Royal at that time. Uh -huh. So uh, you're probably talking about the fashion for reading Shakespeare at home, of course, at that time, for reading it aloud. Um, you yeah, might yeah. buy it for that purpose. Yeah. Um, and amateur productions. Yeah. Right. And what's interesting about Bell's text is that it seems to be, it seems to see one of its principal tasks as being to preserve in print what it thinks are the superior versions of Shakespeare which are being performed by the theatres. Versions which have been corrected of faults. Um, and I'll let Simon, love, I'll let Simon read this piece because um, it's such up? fun. Yes, I'll put it up. Oh, there we are. There is no doubt that all our author's faults must justly be attributed to the loose, quibbling, licentious taste of his time. <laughs> That's Shakespeare, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, so, yes. He, no doubt, upon many occasions, wrote wildly. Merely, merely to gratify the public. <laughs> As Dryden wrote bombastically and Congreve obscenely to indulge the humour and engage the favour of their audiences. The above considerations first started the idea and induced the undertaking of this edition. And as the theatres, especially of late, have been generally right in their opinions, <laughs> omissions, of this author particularly, we have printed our text after their regulations. It's brilliant, isn't it? it? Is. Absolutely brilliant. This is the sort of beginning of things like, um, oh, somebody in the audience will know, the, the, um, the which one? So what are you talking about? Bowdler? About Bowdler. Yes. Yeah, it's been of that principle, isn't it? And Voltaire going, Shakespeare's rubbish, and, and uh, yeah, anyway. But it's, it's rather nice because they're sort of saying, um, but of course, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't Shakespeare who was choosing to do this. You know, if he had, if, you know, no doubt if he had lived in our more genteel times, he might have, he might have written more. Um, so, so he did, he did write merely to gratify the public. Yes. I mean, he was... <laughs> but but, but it's, it's the loose, quibbling, licentious taste of his time that's leading yes. him to do it. Yes, so yes. he can still be a kind of revered national poet. And I love um, the idea of the respect with which the theatres are held that, that <laughs> their emissions are good. Yes, correct. Very good. <laughs> Just have um, more of that now, really, shouldn't we? <laughs> so in these editions, some lines are simply cut. This is quite a nice example. This is um, Claudius's first speech in Act One, Scene Two, and um, it's a lot shorter than it is in either of the um, authoritative texts. And we just get a lovely note at the bottom which says, four and twenty lines of this speech with a brace of useless ambassadors are omitted commendably. <laughs> Fantastic. Do you want to read this one? Did you...? Um, I, don't know I, I don't know whether I recognise the cut. Somebody in the audience might. Um, Though yet of Hamlet, our dear brother's death, the memory be green. And that it us befitted to bear our hearts in grief and our whole kingdom to be contracted in one brow of woe. Yet so far hath discretion fought with nature that we with wisest sorrow think on him, together with remembrance of ourselves. Therefore our sometime sister, now our queen, the imperial jointress to this warlike state, have we, as twere, with a defeated joy, taken to wife. Nor have we here in barge or better wisdoms which have freely gone with this affair along. But now, Laertes, what's the news with you? You told us of some suit. What is Laertes? Um, I wouldn't be able to recognise what... I can recognise a couple of the cuts... Basically, we um, just cut the, the ambassadors. The ambassadors, who come. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it, 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 it does raise a very serious question about, or a very big question for us, about length. Mm -hmm. We've, we had two, two mentions of length. 
we have the two hours traffic, the it's Romeo and Juliet, isn't it? Mm -hmm. The two hours traffic on the stage, which is mentioned in Romeo and Juliet. And that sort of problem we've always had as performers of thinking, how on earth did they do mm -hmm. Romeo and Juliet in two hours? They can't have done, can they? No, they I mean, can't presumably have presumably they done. always did it as a cut. There are various... Um, yes, although apparently in Elizabethan England, the main clocks um, only chimed Brand the... slow. <laughs> yeah, brand <laughs> slow. Um, only chimed the hour um, and sometimes the half hour. So, in fact, the two hours traffic of our stage might be anything up until the clock strikes three hours. Um, so two hours traffic might be... <coughs> Oh, that's interesting. Might be hedging your bets a bit. Um, but even so, But even actually, so, I mean, I... There's, there's been various studies about how fast you would have had to have delivered <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, and but it's, it's an it's, awful it's, lot faster than anybody does it now. the academic consensus that... I mean, let's go back to Hamlet just quickly, about the folio mm -hmm. being shorter than the quarter, second mm -hmm. quarter. Is, is the sense that... I mean, for instance, in the folio of, the, of Hamlet, there's one big soliloquy of Hamlet's missing entirely, which is how all occasions do inform against me. Mm -hmm. Now, I keep on saying, when I did Hamlet, when I did Hamlet, <laughs> uh, I decided not to do that last soliloquy, or we decided not to do that last soliloquy because um, time, but also because I felt it was repetitive psychologically, that it didn't... I'm, this is an entirely invented argument. I could, you could easily argue that it isn't obviously. But to my mind, I said, OK, he's repeating himself here, I'll cut it, and I have the folio to support me on that. And then, in fact, I used to go further, I used to say, I think Shakespeare decided to cut it uh, mm -hmm. for the edition that would end up in the folio, although he was dead by then, that he made a, 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 an authorial decision to say, that's out, it's too long and it's too repetitive. Mm -hmm. Is there a possibility that could have happened? I mean, yeah. do we know... The what, so, as I said earlier, the second quarter of Hamlet is thought to be the closest to the authorial manuscript. So if we imagine Shakespeare um, writing his manuscript and then um, making, uh, keeping a copy and making another copy to send to the theatre, and then all the things happen at the theatre that you expect to happen. It has to go off to the censor, which is why most references to God are changed to heaven in the quarto, that sort of thing. It goes to the censor. Mm. Um, and then, of course, yes... Playing length, we haven't got enough. You know, we haven't got enough time. It'll be dark by the time we by the time we finish Hamlet, and uh, we don't have stage lighting, that sort of thing. Yeah, um, it would be so, fascinating to know what, for instance, what Burbage, who was playing Hamlet, also contributed, <laughs> yes. isn't it? Because nowadays, if you do a new play with a load of actors in this theatre, the actors are going to be talking a lot. Yeah, and they're going to be giving their opinions very, very forcibly to the writer as any writer yeah. will tell you. And we know um, Shakespeare was part of that company, so there's, there's every possibility that, that Shakespeare is involved in those sorts of decisions yeah. to cut how, how all occasions do inform against me, for example. Um, and it's thought that the text that is printed in the folio is closest to the Playhouse copy. So closest so that would be what to was the one performed in the theatre. And how long is that? I wonder how long that lasts. Probably about three hours. No, probably more. Mm, a bit more, I should think. Um, Depends I've, how fast you do. <laughs> just, uh, some of you might have heard this, me say this before, but there's um, a marvellous line in Hamlet, he's fat and scant of breath, which was marvellous for me. Uh, and I always imagined that sort of later on during Ham, Burbage's playing of Hamlet, you know, he'd been playing it for a couple of years by then, he'd had a few too many beers, and Shakespeare was going, oh, blimey. Uh, it's in the fight scene, this line. God, look at him. We, we just, we've got to register. We've got to acknowledge this, haven't we? He's fat and scant of breath, right? <laughs> uh, you know, that's my theory about fat and scant of breath. So, um, yeah, in, in other places in these Bell's editions, we just get cut, rearranged lines. We also, interestingly, get some commentary which is aimed at performers or, or directors. Um, and we'll ask Simon to, to read this one, because this is the um, note we get on the sort of person who should play Hamlet. The personage of Hamlet should be a good, if not a striking figure, with very flexible, spirited, marking features, a sonorous voice, capable of rapid climaxes, and solemn gradations. It's fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> I tick all those boxes. <laughs> <laughs> mm. 
So these, these Bell's editions got used for two or three decades in the theatre as the basis for, basis for prompt bookmaking. And then they were replaced by various other editions, Kemble's edition, other standard um, acting editions that contained the plays as they were performed at one of the major theatres. Um, some of them have got quite elaborate um, stage directions. Some of them record the action. Some of them also um, give us lists of costumes. So both Cumberland's edition and Charles Keane's edition give us this rather fascinating list of um, costumes. Uh, Simon might read one because it's probably quite difficult to, to see from here. Can you hear what Hamlet's going yeah. to wear? Oh, Hamlet. Yeah. Hamlet, black velvet doublet with square neck, black velvet trunks and circular robe lined with purple satin, and broad bugle trimming, some of you know that, with large gold cord and tassels, black silk hose shoes and roses, black coronet cap with black feathers. The king wears black velvet shirt and armhole cloak, richly trimmed with gold and white fur with spots, white silk hose, black shoes and roses, black velvet hat with the coronet around it, and white feathers. I mean, it's very, very detailed. Is the assumption from the editor that everyone should do this? I think the assumption is that um, this is clearly recording what um, happened in, um, you know, what the costuming was like for Keane's production. And I think the assumption is that, you know, this is here if, if you... If you want to be really good want, in this play. If you want to be really good at it, you want to do this. And, and similarly, we've got... We've got stage directions, and, and again, I think the implication is um, this tells you how you might do it best. We've got this... What's fascinating about the stage directions is that we get... Um, the conductors of this work print no plays but those which they have seen acted. The stage directions are given from their own personal observations during the most recent performances. But what I like at the bottom of this is that you get the note, the reader is supposed to be on the stage facing the audience, <laughs> which is quite significant because that is assuming now that the reader of this text is a performer, is an, is an actor, rather than is, is positioning themselves as an audience member, imagining, um, trying to reimagine the play um, as performed on the yeah. stage. So it is assuming, presumably, that it is going to be used by actors. It's also the, that's the way we, we do it still, yes. isn't it? That's the way so you would... So st stage left yes. is there. Yeah. And stage right is there. Yes. And that's still the case. So I wonder which came now first. I mean, I wonder, to... wonder whether they're saying, we're going to explain to you what stage right and stage left means, or whether over the years, gradually... Because if you were a director, or well, they didn't have directors then, did they? But if you were looking, as you say, you'd reverse it, wouldn't you? I wonder which came first. Yeah, the thing is that edition, now, if you had a, a, an edition, most editions of plays don't, wouldn't give you stage no. right and stage left because they're not trying to be prescriptive in that way. Um, so I suppose it's just the fact that this is a performance edition and it's imagining you're the actor, so it's giving you stage right and stage left as yeah. if you are the actor, as if yeah. you are on the stage. And we get things like this, you know, Horatio crosses in front of the ghost to right, the ghost crosses to left. So quite fairly prescriptive in terms of, um, of the stage directions. And getting closer to something that you might use if you were thinking of mounting a production of Hamlet. Um, there were some further acting editions um, of individual plays published in the late 19th and early 20th century, but they gradually dropped out of use because... Professional productions started to use more academic editions of the plays, fully published play texts, and essentially deciding to make their own cuts, which is still really, what to this do. day, um, yeah. what, tends to, what tends to get used uh, in the theatre. But, of course, the most famous 20th century acting edition, um, not only of Shakespeare's plays but many others, is, of course, French's acting editions. These might be familiar to people, particularly if you've been in an amateur theatre company. Does anybody here know about them. French's production? Of... Isn't that few funny? A few people did. Yeah, yeah, French's editions were the... Even 30 years ago was... Yeah. Yeah. Pretty standard. Yeah, standard editions. Funny, isn't it? it disappeared. And they're fascinating, these French's um, editions, I think. This is the, the Hamlet that, um, that closely follows the version prepared by Johnston Forbes Robertson. 
And it's a bit like, the text is a bit like those very early acting editions in that you've got pretty much the whole of Hamlet, but you've got square brackets around the bits that Sir Johnston Forbes Robertson didn't do and you probably wouldn't want to do either. Um, so th there's a suggestion of we are giving you, we're giving you the whole text, but we're telling you which bits you can leave out, um, which sometimes is quite convenient, I suppose. But they do leave very little. I mean, if we're talking about the, the keen text as starting to be quite prescriptive, this has got, it's got a full plan of the stage, tells you exactly what you need. It's got a full list of props and furniture and lighting for each scene. And then this is the text itself. You've got, you've got two columns and you've got the, the, the words, essentially, the, the, the text. Um, and then you've got these notes, which are basically telling you exactly what to, what to do with it. I'm going to ask Simon to read number four here. Um, we can this, read more this, of this is amazing. It's the very first line of the play, which is famously, of course, who's there. Four, an indication of apprehension in the manner of Bernardo in respect of the apparition of the king must be registered from the outset. Bernardo's who's there should not be given as an ordinary challenge, but as though the man had superstitious dread. So <laughs> interesting, isn't it? I was saying to everyone, we were looking at this this morning. Yeah, yeah I, I, said, I, I said, well, of course, it's obvious, really, isn't it? They don't really need to say it. And I and said, then... no, well, if you, were Bernard, if you were playing Bernardo and you thought, I'm feeling good today. Bernardo's feeling good. I'm not particularly frightened. Um, well, I had a funny thing a couple of nights ago, but... Actually, does Bernardo see the ghost? Has he actually seen... Anyway, you could, what I'm basically saying is that you could, you could presumably use a different series of arguments uh, whereby you could say who's there very confidently. I mean, I, I, yeah. I don't see that that's... Uh... Absolutely, yeah. yes. Yeah, you it's could, very, it's, it's very rather than preempting what's going to come from, yeah. from the first Can I do line, a yeah. little parenthesis? When I was doing King Lear... <laughs> 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 The last lines of King Lear are, look there, look there. And I was talking to a friend of mine called Sonia Masai, who's a great academic, fellow academic. And we were talking about the last line of, look there, look there. And it's always glossed as being somehow, he's got you know, his dead daughter in front of him, as somehow being a redemptive moment, a moment of hope. Perhaps he's seeing her breathe. Perhaps he's seeing her in heaven. Perhaps, you know, a whole range of sort of, look there, look there. And suddenly, it was halfway through the performance, and I suddenly thought, what if it's saying to the people around him, look at that. Look at the corpse of my daughter. And you've, I'm not saying I'm particularly brilliant, but you've flipped the whole meaning round, haven't you? In which case, you sort of, if for the next night I played it up to that point, you'd have to sort of play it up to that point. That's where you'd be leading up to. You wouldn't be leading up to a redemptive. And because I was very keen that King Lear should not be a sort of redemptive play, because I don't think it is particularly, that was, that was a, a, a significant reversal of a line for me mm -hmm. as a performer. And it suddenly made me realise that all these lines for modern actors have, and they must have done for these actors as well, a whole range of possible options depending on where you wanted to go with it. You know? Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think in some ways these, these French texts seem quite contradictory because in some ways you're assuming no imaginative ability on, on the part of the, the actor or the director um, and you're assuming that somebody wants the interpretation given to them and are essentially just going to kind of reproduce the text um, reproduce the version um, in, in the French's edition. And but, yet but you've you, got you, very technical language. I mean, you know, so do you want to read this one? So I quite like figure three here. Figure three. An inset scene which can be braced and flanked by tabs or traverse J and backed by traverse F, which is used in all inset scenes and should be of a neutral tone upon which different effects of light may be obtained. Well, I don't know how to do that. And I've, done quite, I've done quite a lot of plays, and I wouldn't know how to flank tabs or traverse J. So I, I think, I think interesting... the French editor would probably go, you know, this is just... This is, this is just to help you along. Mm -hmm. Don't you think? I mean, if you were, an, if you were a, an amateur group that didn't have a lot of time, 
and people rehearsing after a day's work and had a couple yeah. of hours to spare, you know, perhaps, perhaps it's that. Or even yeah. a professional company. You know, if you were in rep and you were doing yes. weekly rep, for God's sake, you know, and these, these were hugely popular doing weekly rep mm -hmm. and you had to get a Hamlet together in a week. Have I just gone? <laughs> and you had to get Hamlet together in a week, <laughs> then presumably, mm. um, yeah, it'd be very useful, wouldn't it? I think so. I think, um, I suppose what we were doing, um, when, we were when I was looking at some of these, thinking, what do we want to do with acting editions? And thinking, most companies now probably don't want everything blocked for them. Probably even most amateur companies, most amateur companies I've seen performing in recent years, have been very imaginative in their, in their productions. Most schools, most drama schools, you know, somebody actually wants to come up with these ideas. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's quite a good... Um, there's quite a good anecdote, actually, about French's acting editions being used, exactly as Simon says, by um, regional rep companies, companies where you've got to, you've got to put on, um, yeah, a play. You've got two weeks to, to get your play on. It's quite useful if somebody tells you, tells you what to do. Um, there's a biography uh, actor, uh, Glyn Idris-Jones, and he talks about working for Lionel Ham Hamilton at Northampton Rep, and he says... Even if they lacked imagination, his productions were clean, professional, and at least he didn't always abide by French's acting editions. <laughs> and then he cites this anecdote where he says, there was a director who, looking at his French's script, says to the actor, you move downstage here, to which the actor replies, I am downstage. <laughs> to which the director says, I don't care, it says you move downstage here. <laughs> and the actor falls into the orchestra pit. <laughs> I hope that's true. I hope. <laughs> Can I just test? Am I still... Am I got, got it back? He's back. You are brilliant over there somewhere. <laughs> oh, it's you. Do you want to fiddle with me? Shall I just... Um, you just keep going. Shall I keep going? Um, so acting editions representing the play as performed continue to be published to this day. You might have seen some of these. Um, Stephen Unwin published um, the text performed by English Touring Theatre under his artistic directorship in the, earliest, um, in the early 21st century. And um, Stephen's editions have got the cuts and the punctuation which he used in his productions. And this is something pretty significant. We might get to talking a little bit about this, but... Um, he decided that um, most modern editions of Shakespeare were over-punctuated for, um, for actors and that even the early printed texts, even the folio, had too much punctuation. Now, we don't know um, very much about the way in which Shakespeare might have punctuated his texts, but evidence suggests that they weren't very heavily punctuated. Um, and... A number of directors, Steve Unwin, um, the late great Peter Hall um, was another one who felt that um, if, you, if you gave actors a text with a lot of punctuation in, they tended to break up the verse too much. So um, Stephen Unwin took out most of the punctuation um, in the text that he gave to his actors, um, only really essential full stops. Um, he took out what he regarded as sort of extraneous commas. And... Um, Th that is represented in the, the published texts of his English touring theatre productions. Because the, um, the, the flip side of that is that punct modern punctuation is for clarity, presumably, exactly. isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's for getting yeah. the argument. Yeah, I mean, we should head. probably say here, this, this was something we talked about so <laughs> much. It was, one of, it was one of the biggest things we talked about um, early on, was what on earth are we going to do with the punctuation of our editions. Um, are we going to try to strip it back? Um, and I spent a lot of time going back to the second quarter of Hamlet, thinking, well, maybe we could use the punctuation of that. And then you find that the whole of Claudius's speech, which we got part of a minute ago, is punctuated as a single sentence. Now, that's probably as difficult for an actor um, as something which is over possibly over-punctuated. Yeah. Um, and I was talking to uh, various colleagues who've edited texts over the years, and they said, once you start removing punctuation, it will become arbitrary. You won't know where to stop, and you might remove something that really helps the actor with the sense. So 
We've actually stuck with the punctuation that is used in the Arden Three editions, and I mean, we've it, put it, a note. Haven't as we? you say, we, we, we've <laughs> talked about this yeah. endlessly. I mean, I, I have a thing about that, that, that it should be as clear as possible, rather than I'm not as Puritan probably as Abigail about verse speaking, but well, we haven't got much time left. But we could get onto that very quickly. But the but the thing about the punctuation is also the what's so fascinating about quarto and folio studies is that is that um, little characters come up. And we know something about the various compositors of the folio, for instance, and they've been given uh, letters, you know, compositor A, compositor B. We know that compositor E was rubbish. I think it was called John Lowen, wasn't he? And he was a young teenager um, who'd just been apprenticed, but he was terrible. Because we know they've worked out, these brilliant academics, they've worked out which passages were done by him, and they all have the same sort of mistakes, and they're terrible. Um, Compositor V was very good. Uh, but there are things like there was a, a, a scribe called Ralph Crane, is that yes, right? Yeah. And Ralph Cranes would have presented his handwritten copy to the printers, and his punctuation is very idiosyncratic. Mm -hmm. He loves um, brackets, mm -hmm. he loves parentheses. So if you look at it, and he did The Tempest, if you look at The Tempest in the folio, it's full of little bits in parentheses. Mm -hmm. Now, actually, in an odd way, that's quite useful for an actor, but it does look very, very odd and mm -hmm. very over-punctuated. Yeah. So these, this is a sort of debate that is in much more complicated than it looks. And, uh, well, I think we, we, well, we sorted it out, sort of, didn't we? But, I mean... Yeah, we just put a, we put a house, note saying we've, we've, uh, we've kept the, the punctuation of Arden 3, but the actor is not obliged to follow it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Basically, I think. Um, which, which sounds like a cop-out, but actually... Um, as Simon says, it, it, would be, it would be all very well to use um, the punctuation of the second quarter of Hamlet, but if you got to editing The Tempest, the only printed text you would have would be the folio text as punctuated by Ralph Crane. And in fact, that would be more heavily punctuated than um, a modern text which has been prepared by, um, by an editor. So, in fact, you'd end up, you'd, you'd get yourself into, um, into all sorts of difficulty. These are some other ones. I mean, um, you'll probably know um, the Doma published um, some of their um, uh, texts. Um, uh, Josie Rourke's text of Much Ado About Nothing was published. It's quite interesting um, in terms of what Josie Rourke has to say about um, uh, the text of Coriolanus. Simon might just read this in the, uh, in the introduction. Uh, we published the text in the hope that it may be of interest to those who saw the production or to a reader curious about the choices we made with the play. This is not an academic edition of Coriolanus, nor is it a blueprint for any other production. I mm. think that's very clear. Uh, uh, it's a bit interesting. Yeah, it's, it's like a memento, isn't it? It's it like is, really, yes. And, of course, you could use it if you were mounting a production of Coriolanus. Of course you could use it, and it would give you a very useful blueprint, but that's not what it is designed to do. So I suppose where we were coming from was that we, you know, we, were look, we looked through this history of, of performance editions and thinking, actually, these are not really performance editions for actors. They're mostly these performance editions for, um, as you say, a memento of, of a production. Um, so we started to think, what is it, actors? need and want. And one of the first things I did was to interview Simon. <laughs> so Simon can tell you what it is that actors need and want in well, Actually, I mean, uh, it, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, the, the, um, the Arden Three, the latest slew of Arden, I always use Arden. So this is why this particular invitation was quite welcome, because Arden is the most detailed, to my mind, the most detailed and the most academically um, far-ranging of the editions that you can, you can use. Uh, but they, they are quite thick. You know what I mean? And in fact, I was reading the, the series two, King John, from the Arden series, which is so dry, actually, and there's now a series three. because um, uh, yeah, It's thick. It's, it's an academic tone. And absolutely fascinating. If you have time, you can read all the words. If you don't, and a lot of actors don't, it seemed to me a very useful idea to say, let's use all that brilliant scholarship and just sort of uh, lighten it, just make it a speedier car, a lighter car, um, so that we have all, you know that any choices that we, you read in this edition would be somehow 
supported by Arden Scholarship. Um, the, uh, I had various things. I decided, I don't know about any actors here, but I decided that we, we shouldn't have any history of performance in it. <laughs> I thought that was unfair on actors. <laughs> Say, John Gielgud did it like this. You think, oh, no, I can't. Um, and if you want to know about the history of performance, there are other places you can find it. Mm -hmm. Although it is interesting, I'll just say two things about the history mm -hmm. of performance. Uh, in The uh, Guardian, a couple of days ago, uh, somebody wrote a letter about uh, this production of Much to the Rose, isn't it, I think? Yeah. At the moment. Mm -hmm. Where somebody, when they're doing Benedict's speech, when he finds out that Beatrice is in love with him, he goes, she loves me, why it must be requited is actually how it's printed in all versions. I think it was Derek Jacobi, uh, but he might, he'll have to forgive me if I'm wrong, who invented the version, she loves me, why? <laughs> it must be requited. It's too good not to use. I mean, it's a complete mispunctuation of the speech. And, the, and this chap in the letter was saying, you know, it's funny enough, we don't really need it. Mm. But actually, it's just too good to miss. And you think, once you've heard that that was done, I mean, I nicked it. I mean, and I know that the person in the Rose <laughs> Theatre has nicked it. It's just too good. And um, so there are certain things in the, in the history of performance that are useful. But a lot of the time, it's not particularly. It's a bit, it can feel a bit of a dead hand. Um, and also, there's certain things. There's a piece of business that Donald Sindon did in Twelfth Night, which I think is possibly one of the funniest pieces of business ever invented and cannot be redone, because it's just too famous. Which is when he came on as Malvolio, very prim, proper Malvolio, into the garden where there was a sundial, and he checked his watch, and changed the sundial. <laughs> I, would, I would do anything to be able to do that. But I know that all my actor friends in the audience and people who know about theatre will know I've nicked that from Donald Sindon. It's such a shame. Yeah. Anyway, so we decided to get rid of that, didn't we? We and did. And then just slightly, slightly simplified. So we might just show you now what these... Um, We've got do you want... no time now, have we? Not much. Um, um, show you what we've, what we've done in terms of the additions, which is to put the text on one side of the page. You can see from... Uh, yeah, you've got a bit of a... Hand out, and to put um, the definitions on the other side opposite the line to which they refer. Um, hopefully so that an actor rehearsing doesn't... And if an actor's rehearsing and isn't absolutely sure what a word means, they can just look straight across um, to find the definition rather than having to kind of ruffle around at the bottom of a page um, looking for it. And then the other thing... Oh, we, oh, sorry, are you about to go on? Go on. Well, I was just going to say, what we've actually got um, is two columns of notes. So we've got, we've got the definitions on one side, and then these variants that we've been talking about on the other side. So again, not in a running code at the bottom, but it immediately tells you in the quartos of Midsummer Night's Dream, the first fairy says that line. In the folio, the second fairy says that line. The other thing that we've done is to give indication of how to metrically scan lines. Um, where have I got this? Um, we've, told, um, we've told an actor, for example, where's one that says meter? Um, What's that one there? That's syllables. Me too. Have of your audience been most free and bounteous? We've suggested that if you want to make that line scan, you need to say audience as two syllables, not audience um, as three syllables, for example. Um, and again, we might just say something about that, because Simon, you don't feel strongly about I'm not, these I'm things, not as strict as... We probably can't get onto this speech. Um, we've got that for a couple of minutes. Yeah, we? we've got um, About five minutes. Uh, we've got five minutes. Yeah, I'm less, I'm, I'm, I'm less strict than Abigail about verse because Abigail's an academic. Uh, and she invented a thing called the Quartus Peel, which made me, used to make me laugh. Which is, she didn't invent it. It's um, a type of foot, which I've never heard of. Um, 
I didn't but, invent it. Um, <laughs> no, no, it. But it used to make me laugh, this quarter's period. So we yep, used to talk we about iams and trochees and spondies and mm -hmm. all these things, different types of feet, and she used to come up with a quarter's peon. Um, uh, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I mean my, my theory is that um, you, you learn the rules, they're worth learning, they give you a, um, a, a nice, solid support. But once you've learnt it, and once you, I think you, you, the best way to do it is to actually mark, mark up the script. And if we, um, should, should we go on to the, um, oh, yes. this too, just, um, yeah. oh, it's too, too solid flesh. Um, uh, I don't know what it looks like. Oh, uh, there we are. I would mark up the speech, I think. And then, and there are various things like the Ed thing, which um, mm -hmm. makes Abigail go slightly shivery when she hears it ignored. So, loved, beloved, I mean, that's beloved, it's the wrong one. Uh, Banished. Banished. I, I, I am a little bit less worried about that. I think you can sort of cheat it and go banished. But I suppose that in order to know that you can treat it and say banished in that case, you would probably have to know that um, that, that is what is suggested by the meter in the first place. So yeah. I think what we were trying to, well, certainly what we were trying to do in the edition was to say, look, if you want to scan a line, um, if you want to, to be able to scan this, this line, um, this is how you would do it. If then knowing that you want to ignore it, that's also fine. If you don't want to say um, incision and yeah. physician, then you don't have to or say incision or sepulchre. Revenue. Where you bury people. A sepulchre. Yeah. No. I mean, I think, I think, you know, you have to just go, I'm sorry. It's 2018. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we, we just have to make a little bit of a... But, I mean, I, I, we, it, wasn't, it wasn't a huge disagreement. Can I just also point out that our third editor wrote a couple of paragraphs about me breaking up the first too much in an essay about me once. So uh, we, we sort of disagree about... Um, is, is there somebody down here just be willing to do the first... There were some actors down here, weren't, weren't there? You. You. Um, how would you... I mean, cause it's just a little about three minutes on this speech... How would you begin to prepare that first four lines rhythmically? That's a too general a question, isn't it? It's quite general. Um, it's all one, one thought until the full stop. If you, if you say that first line. Oh, that was too, too sallied flesh with milk. Right. So in this particular edition, you've got two other options on salad, haven't you? So... You've got salad. It, in this edition, you've got salad or solid. We so didn't we, go with what, the 18th century. What Abigail is, is saying to you, she says in the quartos, in the early editions, it was uh, salad, uh, and in the folio, it's solid. Um, un, uh, 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 interestingly enough, there is another version as well, which mm -hmm. is sullied, mm -hmm. which came in, in <coughs> later, I think the 17th century. Yes. Um, so you, you don't have to stick with salad. So, for instance, I decided to go for the simplest option, which is solid, because solid flesh melts. But I think, actually, funnily enough, I think sullied is actually a rather lovely option as well. I think, weirdly, the least useful one is salad, because nobody knows mm -hmm. what the hell it means. So, and there's an interesting... How, how, there's, rhythmically... You went, oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt. Which means that you reverse the first foot, haven't you? Because you could go, oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt. In which case you make it an absolutely regular line. Um, that's the sort of thing that if I think is useful to know. I mean, oh, that this too, too solid flesh is probably what we end up doing. Mm -hmm. But there is an option to go, oh, that this too, too solid, which is actually rather beautiful. Oh, that this too, too solid. So the oh is much less... Um, what about rhythmically the second one? And Good. So you've re again you've reversed the first yeah. foot, haven't you? Mm -hmm. So you could reverse both the, uh, and that's a lovely big stress on Thor, isn't it? Because you certainly wouldn't go Thor and. The, um, a director friend of mine said, if you, and I think it's quite a useful thing, if you can, if you can squash the line, <laughs> if you can make the line obey 
a five-foot pentameter iambic rhythm, do it. If there is no way that you can't make it, then you'll have to do something about it and mm -hmm. play around with the feet. Am I making sense to people here, or is it too... Yeah. Um, I, suppose it's fair, yeah, I suppose it's fair to say that what we, in, in those particular cases, what we've done is we've only noted a metrical variation if it means that the line is, is irregular in some way. If a line's got, say, 11 syllables or 12 syllables um, and you need to, you can scan it a particular way in order to make it fit. What we haven't done is suggest every time you could do one of those um, kind yeah. of reverse, reverse yeah, yeah. feet because... I suppose because it's up to, because it's up to every individual there's, there's actor and we didn't want to be prescriptive about those things. It's very, it's very unfashionable, this. <laughs> talking about uh, spondies and trochees and iams. And, and in fact, actually, the, the vocabulary itself doesn't matter, but as long as the principle is there, that thought and resolve itself into a due is not useful. Saw and resolve itself into a due. But it's interesting about the two on the into, because you have to give it a little bit of weight. Otherwise, the, the um, line collapses like a souffle. So if you go thaw and resolve itself into a due, into a due, yeah. into, thaw and resolve itself into, thaw and resolve itself into a due, means it has a little bit of a, a hit on two. And that's a, a, quite an interesting trick, I think, about about this sort of stuff is that sometimes you can put a line of verse into regular rhythm and it's, it'll sound a bit odd if you really hit it thought and resolve itself in two adieu doesn't make any sense but just to acknowledge in two adieu as I say mm -hmm. gives you that little cradle of security and if I, were, if I were doing this now I would literally mark that all up so I'd go through the whole thing. And uh, have we got to end? We have, haven't we? I'm afraid we have, yes. Yeah. Um, oh, well, that's two lines anyway. Um, <laughs> well, thank you very much. That's it. <laughs> thank you. We've run out of time. Thank you. <laughs>